Today on the Church Next podcast, we're going to talk about Christian vegetarianism. I'm Carrie Graves, a Church Next course producer. And I'm Liz Brignac, another Church Next course producer. And we're excited to be here with you today with this podcast. Vegetarianism is a subject that often comes up in the world of faith because in our faith, we want to be good stewards of the earth. We want to care for God's creatures, care for how they're treated. It's not necessarily that it's wrong to eat meat, but at the very least, it's important to take care of the way the animals are raised, what kind of chemicals are being put into their bodies that go into ours. It all ties into caring for the earth. Right, Liz? Yes, and I was interested in the environmental impact of vegetarianism, which I had heard a little bit about before working on this course, but I learned a lot more about what types of environmental impact are involved with an omnivorous diet. And that was one of the more interesting parts of that course, I thought. So we're going to be talking with Steve Kaufman today, who is the chair of the Christian Vegetarian Association and the co-chair of the Medical Research Modernization Committee. So he's really got the credentials and he has the theological background and the medical background to talk to us about this in really important ways that combine how we live in the world with science and our faith. I'm going to start by making a confession. I get a little bit maybe defensive when I hear um, people of faith talking about being vegetarians, at, at least in the past. And I'll tell you why is because I have celiac disease and I can't eat wheat. And a lot of vegetarian products are made with wheat in them. I also can't eat beans and I need a lot of protein. So my excuse has been, I mean, what am I supposed to eat? You know, I love animals. I would love to be a vegetarian in theory. Um, for the earth and for the animals, but animal protein is the most complete protein. And I think I've comforted myself by um, going around saying how much I love Peter's vision of eat, you know, everything is of God, nothing is dirty. And <laughs> But what it really gets down to and what Stephen has done in this class is just very gently and beautifully tell us all about the ways that we can help and the ways that Christian vegetarianism are important and with really helpful hints about things even a person like me can do. I'm actually on a very high protein diet as well, although I do not have celiac disease and I have run into the same issue. And he helped me figure out some ways in which I can at least work toward the goals that he espouses by paying attention to how the meat is raised by eating more vegetable products, even if I don't eat purely vegetable products like this, we, we've been reducing the number of meat oriented meals in our home without yeah. getting rid of them. Because as you say, there's so much protein, but yeah. there's a fair amount of protein in soy products too, and eggs. So if you're not going vegan, you can still do some of that. So we are using some of his suggestions without going completely vegetarian because I can't. Although the family probably could if we push that. Yeah, me too. And his presentation style is really great. I love the theological origins he presents, which you'll hear more about. 
and his his just like kindness and understanding. And so he made me realize that, um, you know, maybe you do one thing a day. And I was like, oh, my smoothie that I have every day, which is not pretty to look at, but is fruit, greens, flax, and oat milk, and uh, is vegetarian. And I was like, smoothies. cool, I'm actually doing something. <laughs> they can come out like gray green, but they're so good for you. <laughs> exactly. It's been, it's really good for me. And so I loved that. I've been, I enjoyed his approach too. It gives you somewhere between all and nothing and a yes. way to get from one to the other. So it's also not like, oh, well, it's okay if you never eat, if you eat meat forever. He's gently pushing you toward a full plant diet, but he gives you a sort of road to get there and yeah. some measures to take. If like Carrie, you have celiac disease or something, you can't go all the way there. Yes. It's, um, it's really great. And I think it bears repeating. I need to listen to this podcast will be a perfect way to do it. Listen to his work and his presentation over and over for reminders from time to time. It's, it's truly inspiring. I agree. Yeah. So let's dive in and take a look and, um, have an open mind and Stephen has an open mind too. Let's hear more about Christian vegetarianism. themes in the Bible, you're going to find that it's a story of humanity trying to understand how best to live as individuals and how to live in communities that ideally are peaceful, nonviolent, mutually supportive. Um, the Bible is a story of humanity, and humanity has a lot of violence, violence towards each other, violence against nature, violence against non-humans. Um, and the Bible reflects that. It gives a lot of stories about that and, and I think struggles with that. Um, but when looking for overarching themes, I think it's always helpful to look at origin stories because always in, in, in all religions and in, in personal lives and the rest, origin stories are, are foundational. Uh, and, 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 and from those origin stories, we, we try to make sense of, of the larger picture. You know, for example, in relationships, people always ask, well, how do you meet each other? As, because it's an understanding that, that that is the springboard from which the rest of the story evolves. And the same thing happens with the Bible. And in the biblical creation story, you get a sense of what the ideal of creation might be. And in that ideal, we have a story in which Adam, Eve, and all the other creatures um, were prescribed a vegan plant-based diet. They were not to eat each other. They weren't even to kill plants. They were only to eat the seeds and not even kill the plants in order to survive. Um, and so this was a biblical ideal of a peaceful, harmonious existence. Obviously, the story continues with um, Adam and Eve falling from grace, leaving the, the garden, being dismissed from the garden, and then the violence that begins with Cain and Abel. And from there on in, there's a lot of killing and violence in the Bible. But we also get an image of the end of times, which, which gives us a sense of, again, what the Bible perceives as the best, as the way that humanity and the rest of the world is to live. And that's best described in, this, in Isaiah chapter 11, in which the famous passage in which the wolf will lie with the lamb. And all the creatures live with each other, none harm each other. The lion will eat straw. 
um, and will not kill. Now, currently, of course, the lion's digestive system is not amenable to eating straw to survive. Um, and so it would take some sort of uh, in divine intervention for such a world to come into being. But it gives us an idea of what kind of world the Bible describes as being ideal. Now, we cannot live in such a world right now because of the way the world is structured. Um, it's impossible to be completely nonviolent. When you step, you sometimes step on bugs. Um, and no matter what we do, no matter where we go, we're going to leave a footprint and we're going to cause some harm. But I think that we're always called to be, as Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, to do our best to live up to the ideal, even if we always fall short to some degree. Um, and so um, I, when you look at the biblical from such a theme standpoint, I think that you see that a plant-based diet is going to be the one that causes the least harm to God's creatures and to God's earth. Um, and, and I think that that's what we're called to do. That doesn't mean that the Bible says, gee, um, you know, you must be a vegan um, or you must have this kind of lifestyle or, wh or whatever. It doesn't say specifically, you know, that this is the, the what everybody has to do. For example, there are some people who do not have a choice but to eat non-humans in order to survive. Um, and the Bible doesn't say, well, you should just then starve to death rather th than kill. Um, I don't think, you know, so the Bible writers have reflected a vision of, of, of divine will such that um, we should do our best, but we sometimes fall short and we fall short in different ways. Um, and a lot of it can do with our circumstances. So I, for one, would not say, gee, a person who isn't vegan is therefore not living up to a biblical ideal as best they can, um, but rather say, you know, how can I do my best? How can I encourage others to do their best? And it's not my role to judge anybody about how they're living their lives um, that's, that's, that's up to other authorities when it comes to judgment. My, my goal is, is, is rather to be, to answer God's call and, um, to be faithful to the witness, to be faithful to the Christian witness, I encourage others to do likewise, not because I think it's my business that, that, that they're faithful, but rather because such faithfulness is ultimately for the benefit of God's earth and all the creatures that, that, that live therein. So one thing I didn't ever really think about, Liz, is that food consumption is sort of a major issue in the Bible for a lot of biblical writers. Um, they address how and what we eat as a central aspect of living a godly life. And, you know, again, thinking about it, we hear a lot of, there are a lot of rules in the Bible around food, but I'd never really put two and two together. Um, and so the way that food was grown and gathered and, and used and cultivated in biblical times was really different from how it is for us today. And so there's a lot for us to examine about that. Um, the prohibitions in the Bible in context make sense. And I think we're gonna talk about some of those prohibitions and how what their equivalents are for us today. I was very interested to think about, we don't talk in church about the restrictions on eating and the rules about how food was made and dealt with and processed. Yeah. And given that it's such a major topic of interest throughout the Old and New Testaments, it's amazing to me having listened to the course and 
just looked into it a little bit, that we don't talk about it more. the theology of vegetarianism or, or veganism when I when I refer to vegetarianism you know it's, it's a broad topic and um it's 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 obviously plant-based and and I think I would like to first make a notion uh mention that um you know we all try or should try to cause as least harm to the world and and each other and the creatures that are in it um and it's partly about what you eat, and I encourage people to have a plant-based diet. It's partly about how you live in terms of what you wear, the entertainment that you choose, and things of that nature. So it's, you know, I, I don't think, I, I'm always resisting labels, um, and I discourage, um, you know, are, 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 you know, is a, per, a person can be vegan, and then they can be more vegan. Um, you know, you can go around with a mask on, so you make sure that you don't accidentally uh, get a, a bug in your mouth. Um, that would be, quote, more vegan than other vegans. Uh, so rather than worry about labels, I, I, I think it's, it's more just a matter of, of working towards um, being as, as good a person as you can. Um, when it comes to questions of theology, um, that's always difficult. What is the nature of God? Because the nature of God is shrouded in a mystery. Um, there are many people who seem to be pretty certain that they understand what God is, what God wants, um, I'm skeptical about that, uh, in part because people who are equally, absolutely convinced that they understand the nature of God often have very divergent notions of what God is. So at least one of them is wrong, and maybe they both are. Um, so I'm a little bit more, I, I recommend some humility uh, and modesty when it comes to trying to ascertain the nature of God. But a couple of observations. One is Whatever the nature of God is, um, I, I, as a matter of faith, I believe that God wants goodness, wants peace, wants um, communities that are harmonious. Um, and even if I can't prove that, I can still live as if it were true. On the other hand, if I have a notion of God as favoring my particular tribe or my people, however defined, or my species exclusively um, or like, then if I'm wrong, the consequences of my beliefs uh, are gonna have deleterious uh, effects on other individuals and innocent individuals will suffer. So at least I've got, a, I recommend a theology that does no harm to others. Um, I also then start to think about, you know, what has Christianity have to offer um, as, as a religion? Because there are many religions of the world. And in general, people believe the faith that they're, they're raised in. Um, and so, uh, they may be fervent in their belief, but interestingly, it seems to correlate with uh, the religion that, that they were raised in. And all faiths sort of point towards an ideal of nonviolence. And, and interesting, the golden rule, do to others as you would like others to do you, or some variation of that, is pretty universal among the world religions, and even among secular uh, ethical systems. Uh, that, that is a, a good general rule of thumb. Um, but if Christianity has, as, as if it's going to make a case for being, quote, a better religion, then it's got to show somehow that it offers a vision uh, of the world that um, is, is, is one that's good for the world. Um, if it's just good for us, then it's just one of many possible self-serving ethical or religious beliefs. And who's to say one is better than the other? 
um, to say that, you know, for example, in past times, people would enslave other people and say, well, you know, we have the right religious religion, we're the right people, we're the best people, and we have a right to enslave other people. Um, well, that's a rather self-serving religious beliefs. And, and I'm very, very skeptical of, of religious convictions that just serve one's own interests. Um, so if, if Christianity is going to have a theology that, that offers something to the world, something of value, it's got to be something that makes the world a better place to live. And as a matter of faith, I believe that that's, that that's really the will of God. And I, and I think that, you know, referring back to, to the biblical passages and such that I talked about, I think that it is a story of a world struggling to understand how to live with each other in peace, a story that includes a lot of violence, but a story that in, 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 in the, particularly in the ministry uh, of Jesus Christ and, and in the writings uh, of the later prophets of the Hebrew scriptures, um, all of them point towards a community that's harmonious and peaceful, a community that discourages the sacrifices that were commonplace in the ancient world, and, and a community um, where the, the stranger is welcomed um, and even the non-believer is, is, is welcomed uh, as, as, as a guest in, in one's home. Um, and, and the many stories, the Good Samaritan being an example of the so-called non-believer who was nevertheless uh, raised up as, as a paragon of virtue. Um, another interesting passage relevant to all this is in Genesis 2, in which Adam is instructed to till and keep the earth. Um, and uh, this was his, his role, uh, his purpose. Um, and we are called to be good stewards. Um, you know, in Genesis 1, um, God describes man as having, quote, dominion over creation. Now, many people have taken this word and indicated uh, or come to the conclusion that this means that we can do to non-humans and the rest of the world whatever we want, because it's all ours, um, just as, you know, private property might be ours. But interestingly, you have that passage that follows in which everyone is prescribed a vegan diet. And so whatever is meant by dominion, it's not violence. And I think that really what's being meant here is the kind of dominion that in the ancient world, a king would have over his subjects. He's not supposed to have tyranny. He's not supposed to abuse his subjects. He's supposed to be a good king, kind, compassionate, work for the benefit of his nation um, and not for, for his own benefit. And I think that that's what, what, uh, what is, um, is meant by this passage. Obviously, I don't claim to have the final authority on biblical interpretation, but it, it stands to reason that this is a much more reasonable uh, explanation for what's meant by dominion than, than the, the violent and tyrannical notion that so many people have adopted. If we're going to use the Bible as a guide, I, I think, although you can always justify badness in the Bible, because there's a lot of violence, and if you say, well, gee, this is what God really wanted, then, then, then you can justify a lot of bad stuff. But I, I think that uh, Christianity can inspire people to be better people. And I think that a lot of the reason why we have seen so-called enlightenment thinking where, where the rights of man are, are respected and the rest, um, is even though the enlightenment period was not strictly theologically driven, the Judeo-Christian tradition that respected the individual rights and individual well-being was fundamental towards that transformation of humanity because universally, uh, practices of slavery and human abuse and violence, it, it's seen everywhere. And, and it's, it's seen within Christianity and among Christians and the rest, even to the present day. But we've also seen a transformation of humanity in positive ways. And I think that that tradition, um, the Judeo-Christian tradition of the West has had a lot to do with that.
So Liz, as you mentioned before the previous segment, we don't talk about food and how it's produced and the ethics around it in church. We show up with our um, potluck dishes or we order pizzas from chain pizza restaurants. But again, we think when we think about our faith, it really matters. Food is central to the life of the community. Obviously, Jesus broke bread around the table for a reason. Um, when we gather for meals, it is a holy space and holy time. Well, part of that is that our bodies are holy and food is holy and people who grow the food are holy and animals are holy. So thinking about how food interacts with how we care for our bodies and with creation, it makes it really important that we apply our theology and our ethics to our food choices. We're going to hear from Steve about some of those ethics and theology and how we can think more about these things as we go about our life in community. Regarding climate change, uh, I think that there is overwhelming evidence that the earth is getting warmer and that this is having significant impacts on world climate. Um, we know that carbon dioxide and methane, and, uh, among others, are greenhouse gases. We know it makes the, uh, the Earth's temperature warmer. We knew that before people started talking about climate change. Um, but, and we've also known that these, the levels of these compounds have been increasing in the atmosphere, and you'd expect the, the world to get warmer, and indeed it is. Um, we've seen more megastorms than we have in the past, and I think this is due to climate change, which is due to the effects of humanity. Actually, if it weren't for humanity, scientists are telling us, we probably would be seeing the global temperature slowly decrease, but rather it's been increasing um, uh, recently. Um, it, we, we were started sort of in a mini ice age um, until the Industrial Revolution changed all of that. Uh, and that's, of course, been taking off exponentially. So climate change represents a significant threat to human civilization. Um, down the road, primarily, looking down uh, one or two generations. Um, and so if people have little children, um, they may think that, gee, uh, my children uh, someday are going to have to deal with this major problem. It's going to be a significant part of their lives unless we do something about it. Now, simply changing to a plant-based diet is going to be helpful insofar as we know that um, that animals consume a lot more plant food in order to generate food for humans. Um, and that alone is gonna increase uh, CO2 and other emissions. Uh, ruminants in particular, in particular, such as uh, cows and sheep, um, they, have, they release a great deal of methane gas, and this is a potent greenhouse gas. Um, and so there's a lot of effects that, that will uh, contribute to climate change just from eating animals. But there's a broader issue which is that much of the reason why CO2 levels are elevated in the atmosphere has to do with uh, forests that were cut down to make room for pastures. And um, it's, it's a major contributor to, to climate change. Um, what to do about that? Well, if we worldwide had a substantial reduction of animal uh, food production and, and allowed the forest to regrow, 
we could actually take out a lot of the CO2 that's currently atmosphere. And actually it's possible that we could bring the CO2 levels down to about 350 parts per million, which is a target that a lot of climate scientists have, have aimed for. It's still above the pre-industrial level of about 270 parts per million, um, but it's much more tolerable. And if there's gonna be global warming with that, it's gonna be very gradual and not be nearly as disruptive because a very, very gradual increase in climate, in, in temperature, and very gradual climate change is something that humanity could adapt to. But a sudden change in the order of a generation or two, you know, we just don't have the infrastructure. We've built roads, um, buildings, et cetera, designed around a particular in infrastructure, and it's not set up for the kind of weather patterns that we're gonna be seeing um, with climate change. To illustrate, um, where you're in an earthquake zone, buildings are generated to, pro uh, to be protected against earthquakes. Um, now, up all of a sudden, every part of the earth were an earthquake zone, we would see buildings collapsing all over the place because elsewhere, they are not built with those protections. By the same token, um, if, you, if you've been building uh, structures near the oceans, not anticipating that the oceans will rise, all of a sudden, those structures are no longer viable. And that can happen very quickly. Uh, and that could be a big, big problem for us. Um, so a lot of people wonder, well, what about, um, allowing regrowth. I mean, is, this, is, is it really fair to say that um, failure to allow reforestation um, is a consequence of animal agriculture? And I think it is. And, and one way to look at it is the way economists look at problems, which is they always take into account what we call opportunity costs. You know, if you have $100, um, if you, if, uh, you know, if you spent that $100 on something frivolous that you didn't really need, um, you it's not just the loss of $100. You've also lost the opportunity to spend that $100 on something you really want or really need. And so by the same token, it's, there's an opportunity cost of eating animals because by eating animals, we have the opportunity cost that we're not allowing the forest to regrow. And so by, by taking into account this, re, this uh, opportunity cost, um, recently uh, systems engineer Salish Rao has, has calculated that animal agriculture is responsible for more than 80% of greenhouse gases worldwide. And it's a massive amount. Um, uh, and, and a lot of it has to do with this opportunity cost. If you don't take into the account the opportunity costs, it's closer to maybe 20%, but the opportunity costs are huge. So, um, you, know, you know, so a lot of people think, well, gee, if I stop eating animals, what's that gonna do? I mean, I'm one of close to 8 billion people in the world. Um, and the answer is, you know, individually, we're not gonna make a huge difference individually, but collectively we will make a difference. And how are we gonna get a collective action unless we serve as models for other people? If I'm gonna say, you know, we should be eating plant-based diets, I should be eating a plant-based diet as well because otherwise people aren't gonna take me seriously. And so that's one aspect. And another is um, we can encourage people to, I mean, obviously a whole food plant-based diet is most healthy, but there are non, there are plant-based mock meats that are very tasty. Um, and, and, and simulate the, 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 the mouth feel and taste of, of, of flesh, for example. Um, and there's plant-based milks and egg substitutes. So they're out there. Um, so encouraging their use is a good thing. And also encouraging um, the development, I think, of, of so-called cultured meat, uh, also known as in vitro meat, um, because it, that's meat. Now, I'm not gonna recommend that as a health food. It's healthier than the stuff that comes from animals. It's, de it's devoid of the hormones and, and the other additives um, that, 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 that are, are there. And you can make it as lean as you want, so it's not so fatty. But at the end of the day, if you really, really need to eat animals for some reason, um, 
you know, the, the so-called cultured meat may be the answer. So I, I strongly encourage, you know, more research on that, government support of that, because not, not because ultimately it's going to be good for all of us if, if we can get away from, from eat, you know, killing and eating animals. Okay. In this next segment, here comes the big one. As we mentioned in the beginning, Liz, about um, the impact of food production on the world, the way we produce and process and ship food, it affects our communities and the environment. And there's a lot of research going on out there. There's some great documentaries on Netflix and other things that talk about the incredibly damaging impact that animal farms have particularly on greenhouse gas emissions, but just, you know, through all systems, if you think about every every inch of the way, what's required to uh, raise these animals in mass production and um, everything from chemicals used, things that are harming to our bodies and to the environment. So this is the one that for me, when I mentioned uh, being inspired by Steve, this is the big one that really makes me want to kick up my efforts a notch. How about you? It makes me think of the story of the lost sheep in the Bible and the shepherd going to great lengths to find the lost sheep. And of course, we've talked mostly about the sheep as a metaphor for Christians or for God's people. But it also kind of shows how he expected people, how the Bible writer expected people to interact with sheep. You aren't supposed to put them where they can't move and inject them with chemicals. You're supposed to do a lot to keep them safe and healthy, let them graze outside. And the shepherd's job is to care for these animals. So it made me think of putting myself in the position of the shepherd for the first time. I don't think I'd ever thought about it that way before, rather than as the sheep and how we're supposed to care for animals as God cares for us. Wow, that's that is really cool. That's inspiring. And talk about applying theology and theological reflection to this issue. Thank you, Liz. Okay, so for state lesson four. All right, Liz, we are now going to hear uh, from Stephen one more time. And this is what we were talking about in the beginning. In this segment, he's going to give us tips and tricks for how we can ease into that vegetarian diet, whether it's partially vegetarian or even if it's not, even if you have no intention of not eating meat every single meal, this segment is important because it can help you make choices on where you get your meat and how that meat was raised. And as we just talked about in the last segment, that can have an impact on the environment and caring for creation. This is the part of most classes that I like the best because I am inclined to stay in the world of ideas and play with them and theological reflection and analysis. And I think a lot of Episcopalians kind of go in that direction and we really need to figure out practical ways for the rubber to meet the road and practical ways, not just, okay, tomorrow I will no longer eat meat. That doesn't last forever. Instead, incremental steps or ways to get from point A to point B. That's my favorite kind of course when we have someone who does something like this, where you get 
steps and help and practical suggestions. There's a lot of ways that people can easily transform their diet to a plant-based diet. Um, now, some people, they go cold turkey um, and they just stop eating animals or, and or animal products. Um, and other people, it's a more gradual pro process. I would say the latter is more common, but, um, but both are possibilities. Um, I would say that um, there's several things that people can do that, that make the transition more, more uh, make it easier. Um, for one thing, uh, I think it's very important to set up rules to say, for example, I'm not gonna eat animals for breakfast. Or, or, or and or lunch, or I'm not gonna eat animals on Monday or Monday and Tuesday or whatever. And find that, gee, when I give up animals, eating animals on Monday, it's not so bad. In fact, I like the food that I eat on Monday. Maybe I'll make it Monday and Tuesday, maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and maybe Monday through Sunday. You don't have to commit yourself. A lot of people, when they're, when they're uh, forced with the question, should I be vegan or should I continue to eat as I've been eating? They'd say, well, I could never give up animal products. You know, I, I, what am I going to do for Thanksgiving, for example? And, and, and so, they, and so they, they recoil at the notion. And, and then instead of thinking creatively about how they can um, transform their diet, they, they think creatively, how can I justify what I'm currently doing? Um, so rather than put the energy into trying to defend one's behavior, think creatively about ways that one might evolve and, tra and, and, and transform one, one's behavior in the present. Um, there are so many tasty and nutritious foods. A lot of it involves in my recommendation, eating slowly, enjoying the food. So many people uh, gulp down their food, eat it on the run, don't think much. And, and so what they really want is just something that stimulates them a little bit, lots of salt uh, usually in the food, uh, lots of artificially added flavors and the like. Savor the food, have broccoli, not with cheese and butter, just broccoli. It tastes delicious if you really focus on the taste. Now, if broccoli isn't your thing, there's a lot of other vegetables, each with their own distinctive tastes. Um, and, and there's so many nutritious foods. You know, our bodies were never designed to eat a, a, an animal-based diet. Um, if you look at uh, the early hominids and, and the archeological um, and paleontological evidence, um, I think that you can make a case that our ancestors probably ate um, dead animals, carrion, animals that were killed by other animals, um, probably ate some bugs and, and other animal sources, but did not get the, the bulk of their nutrition from those sources, mostly from uh, plant-based foods, seeds um, and, and leaves and stalks and the like. Um, that's in our bodies are really much better designed to eat those plant-based foods than animal-based foods. So were we vegan in our ancient ancestry? I don't think so, but we certainly can be vegan today because there's so many nutritious foods available to us. Um, but our foods are certainly not designed for the, the animal-based foods that so many people eat today. I think what happened was in, in our early history, when humans could get their hands on flesh, that it was good for them because they were in need of fats and, and protein. They didn't have the kind of the, the, the broad range of foods available to them. And so we had a natural taste for those foods. The problem is we still have the natural taste for those foods, but we have unlimited access to them. Our bodies were never designed to have unlimited access to these foods. And, and it's a problem. And this caused a, a lot of health problems. We're seeing heart disease, cancers, diabetes, obesity um, that you don't see in Aboriginal people. Um, in, in, in young age, you know, killing over and dying of a heart attack in the 40s, you don't see this among Aboriginal people because 
they, they don't eat a, a diet that, that is, causes atherosclerotic plaques and causes coronary artery disease like that. Uh, this is what we found from the China study. The rural Chinese people, heart attack before age 60, virtually unheard of. Cholesterol over 200? No, it, it, you know, it, it just doesn't happen. And yet um, you take the same people and put them in the city with the Western diet, and then you see the, these, these effects. Um, so moving towards a plant-based diet, um, it's not hard. Take it, uh, you know, there's a lot of great resources available on the internet. Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine has starter kits and the like, uh, and, and there's lots of organizations that will help that transition. Um, and at the end of the day, people feel better, they feel healthier, more awake, more alert, and, and it's gonna have beneficial effects on their general health and, and reduce substantially their risk of serious disease. Um, I mean, I'm 63, I'm very active, I play sports all the time, um, I run and um, I feel great. Um, and, and so I, I think that, you know, obviously as, 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 they, as they say with investments, uh, results may vary, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's in general, a much healthier way to live. Obviously major changes in diet, work with your medical doctor, uh, particularly if, if you've got some health issues that might be negatively impacted. Um, it's just more about, but you know, so many people, they lose weight, they get off the diabetes medications and the like. Um, again, um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to give medical advice here, but rather say that in general, this is a much healthier diet for people. Over lunch, I'll often have a salad. Um, sometimes if I'm really in a hurry, I, I will have one of those mock meat uh, deli sandwiches just because I got to run. And for, for dinner, you know, my wife and I will prepare some vegetables. We love squash, broccoli. Um, we'll, again, salads are good. We have beans. Uh, um, sometimes we'll have burritos. Um, you know, a, a wide range. In fact, you know, it turns out that the uh, uh, people with a plant-based diet are going to have a more varied diet in general than people with a meat-based meat diet. A lot of the, you know, the sort of meat and potato people, they'll have their burger and fries or whatever. And, and that's, you know, and, and that's, a, you know, a sort of a typical ongoing meal, which isn't terribly healthy to be sure. Um, and, um, and isn't very varied. And so, you know, it's kind of fun to, to experiment with doing things. A lot of different spices, uh, we do a lot of stir fries with different kinds of spices, Thai, Indian, um, and others, uh, Chinese, um, you know, general cho sauce, for example, love it, um, you know, that sort of thing. So, so there's, there's different ways to, to do this, uh, and, and, you know, it, it can be kind of fun. Well, that's the end of our time with Steve today. Um, if you want to check out some other resources on this topic, now that I'm sure your interest has really been piqued, you can look online at the Christian Vegetarian Association, and you can check out some books, Steve's books in particular, Guided by the Faith of Christ, Seeking to Stop Violence and Scapegoating, and Good News for All Creation. There are a couple of others um, by other authors, Dominion, The Power of Man, The Suffering of Animals, and The Call to Mercy. That one really resonates, just the title, with what we've been talking about here today, and The Global Guide to Animal Theology. We also have a number of Church Next courses that I thought fit beautifully with this one. We have some really interesting classes. Uh, there's one called The Living Diet. It's by Martha Teternick. and. Oh, yeah. She talks about eating in a healthy way that's spiritually as well as physically healthy. 
she talks about building community. That's one theme that runs through several of our courses is the fact that you build community through the consumption of food and what kind of community you're going to create. So the living diet is all about mostly about eating food in community with others and considering where your food comes from and mindful eating. The courses that we have made, um, there was one on gleaning, modern day gleaning. Yes. That is very much, the, the guy who does it is the regional director of the Society for St. Andrews, which is a gleaning group. And gleaning means going through fields and recovering food that might otherwise have been lost to the food system. Also recovering food in other ways, like from grocery stores and things that might otherwise get thrown out. And he talks a lot about building community through food, through the gleaning process itself, building relationships with farmers, because they have to trust you enough to let you on their land. I mean, in the world of lawsuits, they have to think about you know, what, you, what are you going to do to their fields and mm-hmm. what are they going to be liable for if something happens. And then we have building a farm faith partnership. That one, again, is about building relationships with farmers. We as Americans, at least, I can't speak for other countries, but as Americans, we've gotten this system wherein we're very distanced from our food. It's one reason a lot of people like to garden, I think, is to get that connection with your own food yeah, back. so true. I am a miserable gardener. I kill things. But <laughs> I think it's <laughs> really... <laughs> I seriously do. Um, I think, though, that it is... Buying locally is more expensive sometimes, but you're building your community. You're creating a relationship with the farmer. You know where the food is coming from. My husband has become friends... <laughs> with these people at our local farmer's market, his, the meat guy, and he and the meat guy talk all the time. He knows where the meat guy's kids going to college. He's friends with the meat guy. He reports when he comes home on the meat guy and his wife and what's going on with them. He's building community with somebody who probably hasn't got very much in common with him. He's a appellate lawyer and this guy is a small farmer and I don't know that their paths would cross much, but they're friends now. And he knows where his food is coming from. And we've been using that farmer more since we took this course. To me, gluttony is way more about mindless consumption than it is about Mm. overeating. Wow! It's about you pay attention, you build community, you eat food in a way that nourishes the community, nourishes your body, nourishes the table that you're at, your family. That's not gluttony, even if you overeat. That's less important than I'm going to just take whatever I can and shove it in to my system. Yes. It can be, you know, whatever. It can be how you get your coffee, even if you sip it slowly. A lot of it is about mindless versus mindful consumption. And these courses really talk very powerfully about that. Oh, oh, oh also Holy Grounds, the surprising connections between coffee and faith. Mm-hmm. That one is a wonderful course on thinking about and mindfully consuming the most popular drink in the world or one of them. It's up there with beer and tea and water. (laughs) That is such a powerful statement that you just made about gluttony. I mean, I love that. Um, Theological reflection, which I am all about, and that's going to stick with me. And the, the courses you mentioned, that is what 
I have to say, I think that these courses have been among my favorites because they've been so hopeful and inspiring that we actually can make a difference. And when you spoke about creating community around food, I mean, we're supposed to be out in the world knowing our neighbor, knowing our farmer, knowing, and it just, it all of it just really uh, kind of crystallizes the central piece of Jesus ministry for me. So thanks for those comments. Those are You're good. welcome. I also think that it's not, enti- it's not even a blame thing. It's our system encourages this approach. It's not like when you go to the grocery store, you're necessarily going to think about the provenance of each eggplant, you know? Right. It's, we need the reminders because our system just kind of detaches us all from all these parts of the process. It's a natural enough thing. We just need to fight it. That's it. That's right. Like so many other systems that need changing that don't really follow the way of love, this is one of them. Thanks for tuning in today. If you'd like to learn more about us, go to churchnext.tv. If you consider a $9 a month monthly subscription, you will have access to all of our Church Next courses. You can also donate to Forward Movement. Um, The money does come. We're one of many ministries of Forward Movement, and the money that goes into that donated money supports Church Next, among other Forward Movement ministries. Okay, today, Liz, I thought we would close with a prayer that I found for animals. And the interesting thing about this prayer is that if you are a farmer or a visitor, it asks that you name the animals if they have names. But today, we will say, Almighty God, we ask your blessing upon these animals that they may have good health, adequate feed, plentiful pastures, and companionship of the flock and herd. Give them good stewards who will be faithful in their care, feeding them and protecting them from danger. Amen. Amen. Amen.